All right, welcome one and all. The series that we begin today and we'll cover for the next seven weeks is by the title that is on the cover of the notebooks that most of you have at this point or on the screen behind me, God's Views of the News. And we'll be looking at ethical issues and specifically what the Bible has to say about those ethical issues over these next weeks together. Before we get into that, I'd like to just cover a few announcements that are coming up, and then we'll jump into the material. But tonight, at 5 o'clock, men, is our annual sportsman's dinner. It'll be at the Woodhaven Community Center, and that is just about a mile from here on Hall Road between Van Horn and West, 5 to 7. We encourage uh, all the men to come. We always have a great time. And for that, you need a ticket. If you are new to our church, then that ticket is free to you. And if you don't come with a ticket and you just wander in, that's okay. We'll let you in. But the tickets are available at the resource table, so you could get that before you leave. Uh, and then uh, for those of our regulars, there's a cost with that. You can purchase the tickets there, but you would need to do that, obviously, before you leave and have it in hand at 5 o'clock today. So I hope uh, you guys will all be able to come, and uh, we'll look forward to a great time with, with that. 5 o'clock tonight, Woodhaven Community Center. And then this coming Saturday begins our new installment of Leadership Institute, and that is for any man in our church who would like to learn from Scripture how to be a better leader in his home uh, and with specific application to the church. And over the next 12 months, meeting once a month on a Saturday morning, we'll be looking at what a leader is and what a leader does through a booklet of material that uh, we'll make available to you. So we encourage you to come to that. Uh, men, and if you would like to be a part of that, then I need to know. So you need to just uh, let me know that you want to be a part of that, and then uh, we will have a book for you at 8 o'clock this coming Saturday at First Baptist of Gibraltar. If you don't know where that is, I can tell you. Just see me on the way out as I shake your hand at the uh, exit door, okay? But that starts this Saturday, 8 o'clock to 10, and we'll meet once each month for the next year to go through that material on what a leader is and what a leader does. And we are, over these next then seven weeks, going to be looking at several ethical issues, one each week. Today we have the introduction and then the very first issue that I hope we can complete in the 40 minutes that we have together. So that's a lot to cover, and so we will go ahead and, and look into it. And if you will turn to the first introductory page then, and let me say you have 40 pages of text then, and we are not going to go line by line through the text. The reason I give you the text is so you can read it and support what's being said. But I've never been of the persuasion to simply read what you can read on your own. Uh, what I like to do is highlight some important features of what's there and then to expand upon those. And so that's what, uh, that's what we will do. Top of page one, first introductory page, we live in a divided culture. Some identify with values that are based on an objective, definite, unchanging, absolute authority, namely the Bible, the God of Christianity. Others reject a traditional biblical value system in favor of a progressive one. For progressives, truth is more a process than a constant authority. It's an unfolding reality rather than an unchanging revelation. For them, there is no absolute authority or truth beyond themselves. And so I'd like to stop there for a moment because... That really is the key issue. The key issue, uh, as you will see in the pages that follow, we have a, a list on the next page of a number of bases of authority from which folks determine what they believe to be right and wrong and appropriate ethical choices. 
But the real issue uh, comes down to this. Is there an absolute authority outside of ourselves that gives absolute standards of right and wrong? Is there such a thing? And if you believe that, it will have a profoundly different perspective than if you believe that ethics and what is in moral choices and what is right and wrong are to be derived from yourself or some less than absolute standard. And so the biggest issue is, is there an absolute authority outside of yourself that gives absolute standards of right and wrong? Or to put it another way, do you believe in some form of relativism? Because if you do, then your answer to that question will be no. If you believe in some form of relativism, which I'll explain in a moment, then your answer to the question, is there an absolute authority outside of myself that gives absolute standards of right and wrong, your answer to that will be no. Because you believe in some form of relativism. Now, what's relativism then? Relativism, as the name suggests, says that truth, or when then applied to ethics, uh, what is right and wrong is related. It's related to the individual or it's related to the circumstance. And that can change. The individual can change. The circumstance can change. Thus the name relativism. And so you can see that that is not absolute. It is not unchanging. Rather, it depends. What is right in a particular situation depends on the person and the circumstance. It's rel related to individual and or related to circumstances. And thus we get the notion of relativism. And so the key issue really is, is there an absolute authority outside of ourselves that gives absolute standards of right and wrong? And the person who is a relativist would say no. Now, relativism has all sorts of forms, but the basic notion is what I've just stated. And it is extremely popular as you will see in some of the statements that I'll give you that undoubtedly you have heard and perhaps you have made. I have my truth. You have, right? I have my truth. You have your truth. Or, what's true for you, what follows, may not be what's true for me. These are all statements of relativism because they are related to. There's, there's your, there's you, it's related to you. And what's true for you? Or to put it another way, it is subjective rather than objective. Objective outside external standards, subjective, the subject, you, is the most important factor. And so I have my truth, you have your truth, or what's true for me may not be true for you, which in turn then gives rise to views of how ethics are to be enforced. If you take a relativist approach, then you might say things like, who are you to cram your morality down my throat? Because there's no such thing as an absolute standard that applies to you and me. There's my truth and there's your, your truth. So now, based on your version, version of truth, from which you have derived what's right and wrong, who are you to cram your morality down my throat? based on a relativist notion of truth and then in turn ethics. Who are you to tell me what to do? And so let's just um, run through that because here's the problem with 
relativism. Um, first, if the statement there is no absolute truth is true, I want you to think about that for a moment, then relativism has already been defeated because that would be an absolute truth, would it not? But that aside, you can't live with it. You absolutely cannot live with the consequences of relativism. So suppose that you are speeding and you blow through a stop sign in a neighborhood. Now, I know none of you have ever done this, but you've read about people who do it. And you've gone through a stop sign, a cop pulls you over. And the cop comes up to you, he says, let me see your license, registration, and insurance, and you're annoyed by being detained by this person, and finally he gets around to telling you, or asking you. That's what cops always do. Do you know why I'm pulling you over? Uh, no. Well, you blew through a stop sign. Oh, you mean the red thing. What am I supposed to do when I come to a stop sign. Well, you're supposed to take your foot off the accelerator and you're supposed to depress the brake and come to a stop before you go through the red octagonal sign that says stop on it. To which you respond, who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body? You're telling me I have to take my foot off the accelerator and put it on the brake in order to stop at this side. Who are you to tell me what I can do? with my own body. And he says, well, I'm an, an officer of the law. Here's my badge. And you ask the question, but why should I do that? On what basis do you guys have this stupid law that there should be red signs that tell me what to do with my body? Well, because if you blow through those, there may be somebody coming across that you hit and you injure or kill. And you say, so... Well, somebody might get killed. I know. So, what's wrong with that? Killing innocent people is a bad thing. Really? Who says? Who are you to cram your morality down my throat? I mean, where did you get this notion that people who aren't fast enough to get out of my way deserve to live? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, you understand. Survival of the fittest, don't you know? And if you ain't fit enough to survive, then you don't deserve to survive. You say, well, how stupid is that? It is. It's absurd, but it's also quite consistent with a relativist view of the world. Truth is your truth. Truth is my truth. Mine may not be yours. Who are you to cram yours down my throat? What might be true to you may not be true to me. What might be true in one circumstance may not be true in another. And the fact of the matter is, what's wrong with relativism is you simply cannot live with its consequences. And so people spout this off, but in truth, they can't live that way. They can't live that way in everyday life. They can't live that way driving our streets. But it is an extremely popular notion. You have your truth, I have my truth. What's true for you may not be true for me. Let me make an additional distinction. There's not only relativism and then absolute truth, but there is also relativism versus pluralism. It's not in your notes, so you can either write it down or just listen or ignore it.
But there's relativism and then there's pluralism, and those are not the same thing. And many people confuse those. What's the difference? Pluralism is this. The name suggests that we live in a pluralistic society. There are many views. Everybody is entitled to his or her own opinion. And in fact, in our country, I'm very grateful that we have a First Amendment that gives us the right to express our own opinion. And so we live in a pluralistic society in which there, is a, uh, there are plural, numerous views, and everyone has the right to express his or her view. And so I'm very much in favor and thankful for pluralism because it gives me the right to express my view that there is such a thing as absolute truth and to preach from a book that contains that and so on without fear of being jailed. So we live in a pluralistic society for which I'm thankful and I'm guessing you are as well. But pluralism and relativism are not the same thing. Pluralism says everybody's entitled to their own opinion. That's true. Relativism says this, all opinions are equally valid. And that's not true. Pluralism is we're all entitled to, entitled to our view. Relativism says all views are equally valid because you have yours and I have mine. And that is most definitely not true. And so as we look at this material, we are going to be looking at then an absolute source and then contrasting that with relativistic sources of truth and then in turn ethics. And so if you will take a look at page one of your notes, excuse me, page four of your introductory material, page four. The other pages simply describe several ethical systems that folks have held. They go by different isms. But the bottom line issue is the issue of is there an, an absolute, unchanging standard of right and wrong outside of ourselves versus a relativistic standard. And so you can read that on your own. But notice on page four, we say some moral absolutes require obedience to human beings to whom God has delegated authority. Some commands contain built-in limitations. Obedience to men always depends upon whether or not God's overall moral standards will be upheld. For instance, the Bible commands children to obey their parents, but if the parents command the child to lie or steal, the child's obligated before God to disobey. Why? The parents do not have absolute authority over the child. They have delegated authority. God alone has absolute authority. God's command to the child to obey his parents has a built-in qualifier. He's to obey his parents unless their commands conflict with God's moral standards. And this is true with one's relationship to the government and to church leaders as well. So let me try to explain that briefly. So for those of us that hold a view of an absolute standard outside of ourselves, that absolute standard then is the highest authority. And all other authorities are delegated sub-authorities under that absolute authority. And no one has the right, then, to contradict what the absolute authority has commanded. That's true in family relationships, it's true in church relationships, and in government relationships. So, we're going to look at the issue of abortion in just a bit. The first issue we will look at in your notes. As we look at that, suppose the government required you or me, assuming that you uh, believe that abortion is wrong, 
forced you to perform or engage in an abortion. You would have to refuse that law. You would have to say what the apostle said in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 of your Bible, Acts 5.29, Acts 5.29, where they were told, do not preach the gospel. The authorities told them you can no longer preach the good news of Jesus Christ. And there in that passage, they famously said this, we must obey God rather than men. And so there are times where there is a direct assault upon what the absolute authority has said. In those cases, you must disobey the delegated authority. Now, with that, I want to make one distinction, and then we'll look at the issue of abortion. We always need to bear in mind the difference between these two words, power and authority. Power and authority. Power is the ability to force obedience. It's the ability. You've got the capability. You've got the gun. You've got the machinery. You have the power. You can, you can make someone do what you want them to do. But having the power does not mean at the same time you have been authorized. Authority means you have been authorized, meaning you have the right. Authority comes from authorized. And so someone or someones can have the ability to enforce what they want, but they may not have the right to do that. And so let's suppose, heaven forbid, there were ever in our country a military coup. You know what I mean? The Pentagon decides we're taking over. Happens in countries all over the world all the time. The military goes in, and with their arms and ammunition and firepower, they take over this, the uh, levers of government. Thankfully, we've never had that happen, and I trust it won't in our lifetime or ever, but it could. Now, they would have the power, wouldn't they? They would have the ability to enforce conformity, but they don't have the authorization to do that. They don't have the right to do that. And so the right to exercise power is delegated by legitimate authority. Now the case that we are going to make going forward then is there is an absolute unchanging authority and the highest of those authorities is God. And God is the only one in the universe who has no one above him who authorizes him to exercise power. Everybody else has to be authorized to exercise power, delegated. God is the only being who needs no authorization to exercise his power. And if you think about it, at some point you're going to get to a level on the org chart where you no longer have a line going down to somebody else delegating. And God is at the top of the org chart. Power versus authority. Now, with that, your view of relativism versus an absolute, unchanging standard outside of ourselves that determines truth and thus issues of right and wrong versus relativism has a profound impact on the issues that we are going to look at, the first of which is the issue of abortion. Take a look at page one, then, in your notes. <clears throat> you have seven pages worth of notes on abortion. That includes the history of the issue. It includes some statistics on Americans' views of abortion. It includes some detail on what 
it actually is and what takes place in an abortion. So it's there for you to read, and I encourage you to, to do that. But I'm going to highlight some areas that I think are most important. The first is under the history of the issue. The practice of abortion has been common throughout history. However, many cultures considered abortion to be a serious crime. Part of the Hippocratic Oath, which most doctors endorse, states in part, I will not give a woman a drug to produce an abortion. The Jewish people were historically against the practice, as were the leaders of the early church, until a few decades ago. Most laws in the United States recognized that a woman was with child at the moment of conception. But in the mid-1960s, abortion laws became more tolerant. The Supreme Court legalized abortion in the landmark Roe v. Wade case in January, that would be January 22nd, so we just have gone past an infamous anniversary, January 22nd of 1973. The majority of the court found a, quote, right to privacy in the Constitution that guaranteed a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy if she so desired, particularly in the first trimester, the first three months of the uh, pregnancy. So let's talk about that for a little bit so that you have some understanding of where that came from and how we in our country have arrived at the point we have regarding uh, legalized abortion. 1973, January 22nd, the Supreme Court, nine-person court, nine men, seven to two, voted that uh, a woman has a right to terminate her pregnancy uh, for any reason in the first trimester, the first three months. And the reason the first three months is because they determined that what they call a fetus rather than a baby becomes viable potentially after and only after three months. So up until the time of what they called viability, a woman has a right to terminate her, her pregnancy. Now, just to have you thinking in terms of what I laid out at the beginning, what is the standard for determining truth and in turn what is right and wrong, you need to ask yourself, where did anyone get the idea that viability was the standard? Who says that viability is the standard? Who is the authority that says that viability is the standard that we are to, to use? But the Supreme Court determined that it was, and by a 7-2 to two vote, invalidated the laws of 50 states in the United States and made abortion on demand during the first three months the law of our land as it is to this day. Now, what's behind that? Well, the 1973 decision is actually based upon an earlier decision. The earlier decision was in 1965. And in 1965, Griswold versus Connecticut. That's not in your notes. But Griswold versus Connecticut. A federal case uh, that decided that a woman had a right uh, to privacy that could not be violated. And so the right to privacy was first introduced into constitutional law in 1965 in a different case, Griswold versus Connecticut. Now, I say first introduced, 1965. You say, you've got to be kidding. The Constitution says you have a right to privacy, doesn't it? Well, you ought to read it. 
and you will have to you'll have to search. You could do like a Google search or something, you know, and put in Constitution and privacy, and you'll get all kinds of Supreme Court decisions, but you won't actually find privacy in the Constitution, the word. So you have the right of free speech. You have the right of free assembly. You have the freedom to exercise religion according to the First Amendment. We have the uh, freedom of a, an unencumbered press, for instance, given in the Constitution. These are all explicitly given in the Constitution. But if you read the Constitution, you will find no right of privacy. So how does a court say that? There is a right of privacy, and not only a right of privacy, it exists, it, it extends to the right to terminate a pregnancy. 1965, Griswold v. Connecticut, and then based upon Griswold, in 1973, Roe v. Wade, Harry Blackman, who wrote the majority opinion for the Supreme Court, used Griswold as the basis that the court has found that there is a right to privacy, and this right to privacy, said he and six others, extends to the right to terminate a pregnancy. So, Justice Blackman, where did you find the right to privacy? Or where did Griswold find the right to privacy? And he sought to answer that question in the Roe v. Wade decision. And here's what he said. The right to privacy, I'm quoting, is found in penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. You guys all good? <laughs> Let me repeat. The right to privacy is found in penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. So what is that? Well, if you were to look up the word penumbra, you would find that it, it, it means shadow. The penumbra is a shadow. So the right to privacy, let's try to break it down as best we can, is given to us in shadows formed by emanations. What's the word emanation mean? Something emanates from, it, it means it derives from, it comes from. So the right to privacy, says our Supreme Court, comes from emanate or comes from penumbras that is shadows formed by emanations that is that are derived from the first amendment and based upon that the right to terminate a pregnancy in the first trimester became the law of the land and is the law of the land to this day so where is this right to privacy i would just hazard this if you have to resort to penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment, then it ain't there. What you said is there ain't there. Forgive the grammar. And what you actually did was impose what you think should happen upon what's actually there. And I'll talk in a few moments about how they were able to do that. But please be clear about this. The Constitution says nothing about a right to privacy, an absolute right to privacy. It says nothing about the word privacy or the phrase right to privacy. And by the Supreme Court's own writing, Roe v. Wade, 1973, it comes from penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. 
One of our Supreme Court justices, current Supreme Court justices, Clarence Thomas, I'm told, I've never been in his office, but I'm told he has a, uh, a sign on his desk that when you enter, you see first thing. And it says, please do not emanate on my penumbras. <laughs> and he's, of course, making fun of it because he doesn't, uh, he doesn't agree with it. Now, how can you interpret, then, a document to have shadows that derive from the First Amendment, penumbras emanating from the First Amendment, if it doesn't, if it doesn't say that? How, how are you able to do that? Here's how. You take an approach to interpreting the document that allows that sort of elasticity, that sort of freedom, that sort of latitude. And so there are, on our Supreme Court now, and there have been for several decades, those who take opposing views of how a document, in this case the, the Constitution, is to be interpreted. And sometimes you will hear the phrase, a strict constructionist versus a loose constructionist. You ever heard that? So a strict constructionist says that we are to strictly construe the meaning of the Constitution and confine its meaning to clues given to us in its text and sometimes in its, in its history. Strictly construe. A loose constructionist will take what is called a more living constitution approach. The constitution, and this is their own words, this comes from, for instance, uh, Harvard professor Roscoe Pound, who was a proponent of the idea of a living constitution. The, the constitution is a living, breathing document. And it changes its meaning with time to accommodate the circumstances. Loose construction versus strict construction. Now, I am in the business of interpreting an old document a lot. It's not the Constitution, it's the Bible. And if I were to resort to a loose construction approach to the Bible, then you could really make the Bible say just about whatever you wanted to, could you not? And in fact, there are people who take a loose construction approach to the Bible as well. So things that the Bible would prohibit, it prohibited because they didn't know then what we know now. And if they knew then what we know now, the living, breathing document that is the Bible would get up with the times. You might be able to gather that I don't take that approach to the Bible. And further, I think it's impossible for you to know meaning of any document unless you engage in trying to determine, and this will be, I think, my last big term for the day, authorial intent. Authorial just means author. What did the author intend to communicate? What did the one who wrote it and composed it intend to say? And the only way you can do that is to put what the author said in the context in which he or she said it. That's how you interpret the Bible. The truth is, that's how you interpret the newspaper. You have to put it in the context of what that individual was attempting to communicate. It doesn't mean you agree with what they communicate. That's another issue altogether. But what did they intend to say? 
in what they wrote. So, the Bible, or excuse me, the Constitution has a number of phrases in it that are really not that hard to decipher if you put them in their original context and understand what the author intended by what he, in this case, said. So you have cruel and unusual punishment. One of our lessons in this series is on the issue of capital punishment. The Eighth Amendment to the Constitution prohibits cruel and unusual punishments. So if you want to know what those guys meant by cruel and unusual punishment, then you would want to do things like find out how that phrase was used at the time they, they used it. What did it apply to? And what kinds of things did they allow and what kinds of things did they prohibit under it? And this is one of the things that we will see when we get to our lesson on capital punishment. You will see that the notion that cruel and unusual punishment applied to any form of cash, capital punishment would have been totally foreign to them, completely foreign. They were just fine with the idea of executing somebody who had killed somebody else. The only issue was the method you used to do that. You couldn't use cruel and unusual methods to do that. But our Supreme Court had for a period of time determined that cruel and unusual punishment meant capital punishment was by its very essence inherently cruel and unusual no matter how you did it. They've reversed that. And they've reversed themselves a number of times. And so it's one example of strict construction versus loose construction and the necessity to have authorial intent. What did the author intend to communicate by what, by what he wrote? And we turn then to page three in our remaining time to see what the Bible says using authorial intent about the issue of abortion. Bottom of page three, biblical principles that support the humanity of an unborn child. Personal pronouns and proper names are used in the Bible to apply to unborn children. Look at the top of page four, Psalm 139. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Excuse me, Psalm 51. And then Psalm 139, for you created, you God created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Luke chapter 1 in verse 44, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. So human emotion is explicitly attributed to the unborn, in this case, John. Emotion is an aspect of personality. It would seem the Bible attributes personality and therefore personhood to the unborn, but more explicitly, the Old Testament law views the unborn as fully human persons. Notice Exodus chapter 21. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, Burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The point of the passage is that both the mother and the unborn child are of equal value. If neither the premature child nor the mother is hurt, a simple fine is levied. However, if either is hurt, the guilty party will be punished in kind even to the point of death. 
And so the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, views both the unborn and the adult as equally human, equally valuable. So the text then gives no credence to abortion of the fetus, but rather reveals the sanctity of both adult and fetal life. Exodus chapter 21 is a very explicit statement about God's view of the unborn child and the value of that life. Now, just move on here uh, in just a moment, but I mentioned that the Supreme Court used this standard of viability, and I asked the question, so who said that viability is to be the standard? And someone can certainly ask the question, who says the Bible is to be the standard? Granted. And we can argue about what the standard ought to be. And I'm thankful that we live in a democracy where we can all give our voice to what that standard ought to be. But I would make the case to you that what the Bible has to say about when life is valuable and when it begins is every much, in fact, I would make the case more so, authoritative than seven people on a court determining that viability is the standard. And then the Bible indicates that humanness is transferred to the unborn child. Psalm 51 again, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time of conception. This supports the idea that a fetus is indeed an individual human person. A glob of non-human tissue cannot be, quote, sinful. But David asserts that he was sinful from the time of conception, which could be true only if he were fully human from that point. Every aspect of the parent's humanity is transferred to the newly conceived child. The fetus is by nature as fully sinful, as fully human, parent, as, fully human as his parents. And God's interest in the person begins long before actual birth. Again, Psalm 139. You created my inmost being, knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. This passage teaches that much more is going on in the womb than just the growth of a bunch of cells. David attributes all the activity to God. God possessed, covered, made David while still in the womb, skillfully formed the baby's body, saw him prior to birth. His embryo, that is his unformed body, and even the course of his life were determined. So in God's eyes, even an unborn baby is a person. Last question then, then you can read the rest on your own, is this. Why does the Bible not explicitly deal with the issue of abortion? Why doesn't the Bible just have a command that says, Thou shalt not commit an abortion? And the answer to that is this. It's the same answer that I gave to a friend of mine who at the time was attending a church that baptized babies uh, and baptized babies by sprinkling them with water. And we are convinced as Baptists that the Bible teaches that the only people who are to be baptized are people who are able to make a conscious choice of faith in Christ and then to follow that up by obedience and baptism. And that the form of that baptism is immersion. It's what the word baptism means. And you are dunked in water and brought back up. If I like you, we bring you back up. Because that signifies you're identifying with the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. This friend asked, as I made a presentation at his church several years ago, which baptized babies, 
And I told them why that was wrong. And there was a Q&A time. And the friend who invited me said, well, is there anywhere in the Bible that says, okay, we see that it doesn't say to baptize babies. Is there anywhere that it says you shouldn't baptize babies? Does anybody know of a place where it says you should not baptize babies? There isn't one. And my answer to him was, no, there is no place where the Bible says do not baptize babies. And here's why. Because the Bible does not bother to prohibit things nobody was doing. Nobody was baptizing babies. So the Bible doesn't say, stop doing it. Because they weren't doing it. And likewise, with regard to abortion. The notion of abortion was so abhorrent to the Jewish mindset that it was inconceivable that that would be sanctioned by God's people. You don't find an explicit prohibition against it because it was not being practiced within the community of God, certainly not as any sort of an accepted procedure. And that's what we say then in the potential reasons why the Bible says nothing about this issue of abortion. All right, in the weeks to come, we're going to look at several other issues from a biblical perspective, what the Bible has to say, the title of this series, God's Views of the News. Next week, we'll be looking at the issue of evolution, the origin of life, and how the Bible says we came to life, and what evolution has to say about that, and why, from a biblical perspective, evolution is, is incorrect. We'll be looking at that next week. Thank you for your attention.